Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. An all-weather portfolio aims to deliver steady growth while minimizing risk. Pioneered by Ray Dalio, this strategy emphasizes diversification across asset classes to keep on chugging, come rain or shine. I want to know how to construct a portfolio like this and whether it lives up to its promise. And in today's dumb question of the week, how does a tail risk fund work? Okay, let's get into it. Now, this might seem a churlish question coming from a British person, but why would we want an all-weather portfolio, Robin? Well, the alternative is just to buy equity and ride the ups and downs. The reason why people want something like all-weather is that there's always some aspect of the portfolio that does well whatever the kind of economic storms that we're going through. So really, it's finding a portfolio that's more psychologically suited to our risk aversion, where, you know, if there is a crash, we don't have to just be stoic about it. We can always point to a bit of the portfolio and say, oh, look, at least gold's up. (laughs) Right. Because that's the point, isn't it? Generally speaking, it's going to underperform equity in the long term. But the idea is it's going to be less volatile and so should therefore stop you doing the wrong thing where you sell it in a big crash. Or psychologically, you know, it's just more comfortable. The fact that you kind of feel smug about the fact that everybody else's portfolio is down 20%, 30%, 50%, whereas yours is only down, I don't know, 30%. Mm, I do like feeling smug, Roman, so I can see the attraction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it kind of makes sense that it's suitable for people who want a bit less volatility, even if it comes at the expense of a bit of growth. But who isn't it suitable for then? Well, I think if you do have money you're not going to touch for a long period of time, then something like all weather probably doesn't make sense. Because remember, what it's trying to avoid is short-term drawdowns. So if you don't care about that, then it doesn't really make much sense. So let's say you have a really long investment horizon, essentially an infinite one, if you're an endowment fund. You know, let's say it's Harvard Endowment. Well, all weather wouldn't make a lot of sense for them because they just want the maximum return and volatility, short-term volatility is not a huge problem. Weirdly, though, I think a lot of endowments do invest in like all-weather <laughs> portfolio stuff and Ray Dalio's funds, no? Some might, but I think it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do that. I think it doesn't make sense like from a rational point of view because you can just hold it throughout all the drawdowns. But if you're the fund manager and you have to justify it to people on the board of, let's say, Harvard or whoever, who don't really understand investment, (laughs) it's harder to say, yeah, stock market's down 50%, but let's just wait, right? You're probably out of a job at that point. It depends on the fund. I think some are quite sophisticated. You know, Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example, again, infinite investment horizon, But there you've got politicians breathing down your neck. So maybe you do want to minimise huge drawdowns. But I think the key thing is that if you do have a very long investment horizon, I think it actually doesn't make sense to minimise short-term drawdowns at the cost of greater long-term returns. Or a similar situation with an infinite investment horizon is when you have sort of dynastic wealth in a family, when you've got an ultra-high net worth family and they don't really care about a 20%, 30% drawdown. Of course they don't like it. But it's not going to make any difference to their lifestyle. They're not going to have to sell a vineyard because stocks are down 30%. So, you know, for those people with a high net worth, ultra high net worth, then again, I think it doesn't really make much sense. Well, sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not managing dynastic wealth right now. So (laughs) I'm thinking of it from the point of view of an individual investor. (laughs) And I guess my sense is that when you're young and looking to build your wealth, so you're in the wealth accumulation stage, then all weather doesn't make much sense. You probably just want to go for growth. 
unless you're psychologically averse to drawdowns, in which case minimize those. But then maybe if you're older or if you've already built up enough wealth to live the life you want to live and you don't need that much risk, then something like all weather and wealth preservation makes a bit more sense, I think. And I've spoken to people in that situation where they've sold a business and they've got more money than they'll ever need over the course of their life, probably. But there's still a risk that they will have a shortfall. Well, in that case, it kind of makes sense to have something which is safe, because as you say, they don't need to take much risk. They just need to beat inflation over the long term. And so the idea of the all weather is that it is safe. Now we'll get on to whether that's true or not. But firstly, how does it work? So what's the idea here? The key idea behind it is very similar to the ethos of asset allocation. I used to work as an asset allocation strategist, but the idea is that you want uncorrelated return streams. What's a return stream? Well, it's things like stocks, bonds, commodities. Cash. Yeah, cash would be another, or real estate. You know, these are the kind of things which you can invest in, but which tend to be uncorrelated with each other. Whereas if you buy two stocks pretty much from anywhere in the world, they will have some degree of correlation. They move up and down together. So this is the idea of what you mentioned earlier, that whatever's going on in the economy, whether it's good times, bad times, or whatever in between, something in this portfolio should be doing well. And there's a kind of mumbo jumbo macroeconomic stuff that goes with it, which is, you know, you kind of draw four quadrants for growth and inflation. And sometimes when growth is high, inflation is high and so on. And what you want is something which does well in all quadrants. So that's the kind of all weather. So when you say four quadrants, this is something I think that comes from Ray Dalio and his sort of division up the macroeconomy. And he's basically saying there's four main environments. There's when growth is rising when inflation is rising, when growth is falling, and when inflation is falling. Those are the four boxes. And you kind of put your different assets into the box where they're going to do best. Now, the key thing is also that the four boxes aren't equally populated. So if you go back in time, it's pretty rare to get deflation, for example, or deflation and growth would also be kind of weird. So there are certain scenarios which are fairly unlikely. And I think that's one of the problems of the approach. But that's the idea. Whatever the economy throws at you, whichever of those four quadrants you find yourself in, at least one asset is going to be okay. So let's put some assets into it then, or at least what Ray Dalio puts into it. So what goes into rising growth? What do you want there? Well, there you want something which is cyclical. So by definition, cyclical just means it rises in value when you've got good growth. That would be things like stocks, things like some commodities. So for example, Commodities like industrial metals, copper, aluminium, steel, all of those you'd expect to rise during a kind of growth phase of the economy. As people build stuff, it requires copper cables, you need refired bars in order to put into your buildings. Well, all of that's going to draw on commodities, and those in theory should go up in price. Plus, companies are going to be generating a lot of profits, and that pushes up equity prices. And then I think he also has some forms of corporate credit and emerging market credit in the high growth environment. So the kind of risky stuff. Yeah. And REITs would be another, you know, any kind of thing which is correlated with the economy. So real estate investment trusts. And on the flip side of growth, when growth is falling, what's going in that bucket? So there you want kind of defensive assets. So that might be bonds and it might be cash and it might be gold. Yeah. So looking at his chart he's got nominal bonds and inflation linked bonds in the falling growth section and i think as investors we tend to think about government bonds don't we 
when growth is falling because you know maybe corporate bonds aren't going to do so well if companies are struggling yeah that's right credit spreads would widen and you know that pushes down the price of corporate bonds so you don't want something which is going to be falling in value as risk appetite disappears and as profits fall and then on the other side of the chart is the situations around inflation so what about when inflation's rising what's in that bucket Well, in theory, inflation-linked bonds should be a good hedge against rising inflation. However, one of the risks with that is that if yields go up at the same time, or as they have done over the past year, then you get a massive crash in inflation-linked bonds. And interestingly, the last year, I think, has been the worst year on record for the all-weather portfolio, which we'll come on to in a bit. And it's for that reason. Emerging market credit is supposedly an inflation hedge, according to Ray Dalio perhaps because they're going to benefit from inflation, because a lot of EM countries are commodity producers. In theory, I guess, that should push up the value of their currency, but also their economies and their corporate bonds should be okay in that kind of environment. You sound sceptical. <laughs> well, you know, I just think all of this is like a kind of just-so story where you're kind of thinking through narratives and just doing the kind of really basic thinking about what should benefit It's as if you kind of said to a school child who's just learnt about assets, you know, what will do well in this environment? Ray Dalio is one of the most successful investors of all time. You can't call him a school child. Well, (laughs) you know, I think it's always good to question some of the uh, logic behind these things. No, I agree. And the other thing he has in that inflation rising box is commodities, which obviously did do well last year. So if the source of inflation is demand pull inflation, where, as I say, you've got the kind of surging economy, which is pushing up prices due to higher demand. Yeah, commodities will often be at the epicenter of the inflation. So in this kind of polycrisis period after the pandemic, that's exactly what we saw. So energy commodities were part of the initial surge in inflation. They kind of drove it up across the world. I guess it's important to say gold is considered a commodity, obviously. Yeah, it is a commodity, but it behaves very differently to the other commodities. It does have a separate weighting in the all-weather portfolio to the other commodities. Which it should, because it behaves completely differently. I mean, it is seen as a safe haven, and it is a wasting asset. So if interest rates are high, that's fairly toxic for gold. And we did a whole episode on gold a few weeks ago, which is, I think, worth a listen if you want to understand the nuances of gold. And the final quadrant is when inflation is falling and something we're all crossing our fingers for right now. I mean, that's kind of more straightforward, isn't it? That benefits equities and nominal bonds. Both of them will cheer together because if inflation's coming down, then margins usually increase for companies because their input costs are also going down. They can maintain their margins or even increase them. So that's going to push up profits and it'll push up prices. And then for bonds, obviously, inflation is toxic. It's like kryptonite for bonds. And if the kryptonite's taken away, then Superman feels better. And it's kryptonite because bonds is a guaranteed stream of cash flows into the future. And if they're nominal bonds, it's just fixed with no regard to inflation. And so inflation is eating away at the future value you're going to get all the time. Yeah. If you're earning 3% fixed for the lifetime of the bond and inflation's 10%, well, that's not so good. So I guess when I look at this kind of strategy, I think, well, what you've basically done there is just listed every asset class and said, well, hold a bit of everything and it should work out. But then the magic, the secret sauce, I guess, is in what weighting between all these different assets. And Ray Dalio and others take a quite interesting approach, don't they, which is called risk parity. Now, the idea here is kind of interesting, which is 
you choose a weighting of the portfolio for each asset such that it contributes an equal amount of risk to the portfolio. Now, what would usually happen would be that bonds, because they have low volatility compared to equity, would have a really big weighting in the portfolio. That's interesting. So with the quadrants, we're not just saying, okay, I'm going to have 25% stocks, 25% bonds, 25% commodities. We're not doing that. We're saying we want equal amount of risk and I guess volatility of each of those. Now, in the case of long-term bonds, they have a volatility, which isn't much less than something like the S&P. So for example, if you choose the TLT fund, that's the 20-year-plus US Treasury fund, that's pretty volatile. You know, we're talking about more than 10% volatility. For an average index, a developed market index, you'd expect around 16 18% volatility. So those will have comparable weights, a little bit more for TLT than SPY, which is the S&P tracker. So let's take some example weights. So TLT in one instantiation of this portfolio would be about 40%. So that's US long-term bonds, which is a pretty chunky allocation for treasuries. Yeah, 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 it's chunky. That's what I always think when I look at all weathers. It's like you're heavy into bonds because you're trying to do this risk parity thing. And then S&P, 30%, less than the bonds. So immediately you know that on average, this thing is going to underperform because you get about 4% less annual return for bonds than you do for stocks. And what you mentioned there, 40% long-term bonds, yeah, that's just the long-term bonds. You also got intermediate bonds in there at 15%. So you've got 55% of the portfolio in bonds, 30% in stocks, and then 7.5% in gold and 7.5% in commodities. And they're generally making up that inflation rising quadrant, aren't they? That's right. So if, if there is an inflation spike due to energy, the commodities component will help, particularly the diversified commodities, because energy is going to make up a fair proportion of that. And it's interesting, it's only 7.5% of the portfolio. So in an absolute weighting term, it's small. But remember, commodities are so volatile that on a risk parity basis, it's punching well above its weight, isn't it? And people forget that gold's quite volatile, but it is. Yeah. And it's also quite crashy. It crashes for its own reasons, which is one reason why I don't like it as a hedge. You don't want a hedge that introduces its own issues into the relationship, as it were. But what's beautiful about it is that these are fairly uncorrelated assets. So, for example, if you look at commodities and the S&P, those would have a fairly low correlation over a long period of time. There will be periods when they are positively correlated, when they're negatively correlated. And another one might be gold and commodities, which you might think would be correlated, but they're not because of the special attributes of gold, as we said. So what I like about this kind of portfolio is it is passive. Like You can construct it with low-cost passive funds to get exposure to like gold and US stocks and long-term treasuries and all the components. And it doesn't require you to have a crystal ball and predict the economic conditions and go, hmm, do I think the economy is going to do well over the next one year, five years, whatever. You just go, this is my allocation and I'm sticking to it, basically, don't you? So you've got to have faith in it and you will underperform long term. That's got to be understood. Unless stocks just do something they've never done before and crash and never recover, right? Then you probably would do better with this. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like unlikely, but it could happen, right? In theory. It could happen. Anything could happen. Yeah. So we always should have that caveat that we don't know what's going to happen either. But then I guess the difference between this and, you know, just holding like you do in your core, 100% global equity, for example, is that this portfolio has at least five components and they're going to start moving around as markets go up and down. And you do have to rebalance it, don't you? 
Yeah, you can't just sit back and never rebalance. If you do that, what's going to happen is that one of them is going to come to dominate the portfolio, probably the equity component. So let's say you leave it for 10 years and don't do anything, then it's going to be effectively an equity portfolio as it expands and all the others don't expand as quickly. And then your risk management's just off the table, right? Because when the next big crash comes, your equity, which is now like 80% of your portfolio, takes an enormous dip. Now, for some of these platforms that you've got nowadays, you've got the ability to rebalance automatically. So I don't think it's as much of a big deal as it was historically. Literally, with a click of a button, you can just say, look, put this back into these weights by buying and selling stuff. Yeah, it seems that way. And that is true on platforms. But most people aren't all in just one platform in one account, right? It's split across pensions and ISAs and general investment accounts. So rebalancing is a real pain in the ass. I've had to do it before and it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> if someone can automate that with AI, I'll pay them for it. But this is why I think it's easier if you have fewer platforms. It has a higher platform risk, of course. But, you know, I think that simplification is always worthwhile. But look, for this thing, if you're running a risk parity portfolio, I think it would make sense if you have got it, some kind of automatic rebalancing. It just makes life easier, but you don't have to do it that often. Yeah, that's the thing with rebalancing, right? People get hung up, should it be quarterly, should it be annually, whatever. It doesn't actually make that much yeah. difference when you look at the <laughs> back tests. So once a year is usually enough. If markets are moving around a lot, if you've got a big surge in equity or a big crash in equity, usually that's the wild card in the pack. You know, that's time to think about it. Or you could say, well, if we move more than 5% away from my target weights, then I'm going to do something about it. I guess the other thing to say is there are tax implications potentially and trading costs when you're rebalancing, which is potentially a downside of this kind of portfolio split across many asset classes. Yeah, if it's not inside a tax-wrapped account like an ISA or a SIP in the UK or a 401k or a Roth IRA in the United States, then you you probably are going to have a bit of a headache when it comes to tax time. But still, it's not that complicated when you compare it to some portfolios, right? It's only five different things to rebalance between. It's manageable if you keep an eye on it. But I guess the question then is, if you go for something like this, what is the performance like? Does it do what it says on the tin? Does it avoid big crashes? And okay, we've said it underperforms, but is it just a reasonably small amount of underperformance? Well, I think one of the ways in which it does well is by dodging bullets. So if you go back in time to, say, the early 2010s, then there have been various episodes when markets have taken a little tumble. So, for example, 2018, there was a little tumble. 2019, there was another one. And of course, in 2020, there was a big one. And let's look at 2020, for example. If you had some kind of S&P tracker, you'd have lost around... 40% at the worst point of the drawdown, certainly more than 30. Whereas if you'd had something like this portfolio, which we just described, then you'd have lost around 15%, a little bit less than 15% at the worst point. And it recovered very quickly. Yeah, it's much easier to hold a 15% drawdown than a 40% drawdown. (laughs) And I speak from experience now on that. I've been so long where we hadn't had a big bear market for people who, you know, started investing in the last 15 years. But now we can all pretend we're seasoned investors. (laughs) Now, what I have got here that's quite interesting is some data on the real annualized returns by decade. So that means adjusted for inflation and looking at like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Now, what's interesting is that all weather, if you compare it to the S&P 500 and also compare it to a 60-40 stock bond portfolio in the US, how does it perform by decade? So in the 1970s, 
The S&P 500 was down about 5% per year. Bad news. The 60-40 portfolio was down only a little bit less, like 4% per year. The all-weather is in positive territory. Only a little bit positive, but you know, something like 1% or 2%. So it did well there. It outperformed. The 80s, it underperformed. Stocks did really well. What's that, like 12%? And the all-weather lagging behind something like 6%. In the 1990s, basically the same story again. In the 2000s, oh, now it's the all-weather's time to shine. It's still positive, whereas the S&P's negative and the 6040s only just positive. And the 2010s, as we know, was a great time for stocks. Not so great for the all-weather, even though it was positive. So the general story here is the all-weather is positive every decade, and that is not true of the S&P 500. It's had two decades where it has negative returns, and it's not true of the 6040, which had negative returns in the 1970s. So maybe it is avoiding those like long, pronounced drawdowns. But when it really shines, it's notable that it was a lost decade for the US. So it was the 70s and the 2000s. Those were the two lost decades for US stocks. Would you like to apologise to Ray Dalio? Nope. (laughs) And I can't forgive him for saying that cash is trash. He changed his mind on that. Yeah, after it didn't turn out to be trash, yeah. A little late. I mean, if we just look over the last 10 years, the S&P 500's delivered around 10% annualised return whereas Ray Dalio's all-weather portfolio is around 5%. But it's one of those weird situations where looking over just 10 years, it sounds like long-term, but it's probably not long enough to analyse a portfolio like this because the business cycle's longer than that. Now, with Portfolio Charts, which is a brilliant website, if you haven't used it before, you can backtest various strategies, and the all-weather portfolio is one of them. They call it the all-seasons portfolio. I don't know if that's for legal reasons. But it also shows you the average return on the portfolio in dollars or sterling. Now, the important point here is that currency will make a big difference for this portfolio because it's got so much in terms of bonds. And bonds, the return, a lot of the return may be generated by what happens with currency. So on average, this thing has given 4.5% annual return over this period between 1970 and 2022, if you put it into sterling terms. Whereas if you do it in dollars, it's averaged 5.0%. So the currency matters here. And it's an interesting point that, like we said when we were talking through the allocation of the portfolio, and it's just one instantiation of it, you can tweak it. So the classic way is it's just like US-focused, right? Treasuries as your bonds, and with the S&P 500, for example, as your stocks. But maybe if you're outside the US, you don't do that. You have global equity for your stock component and you have some kind of global bond index, right? And I spoke to someone, for example, in Greece, who was saying, should I use Greek government bonds for the bond portfolio? Because I've heard that you should use your domestic bond market. Yeah, that's not your safe allocation, is it? That's not in any quadrant, I don't think. So as usual, it's the case that, you know, if you've got a reasonable domestic bond market, which is fairly safe, then yeah. So what are we going to use then in the UK now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm joking, but it's a serious question, right? Because we have seen quite large volatility in the UK bond market over the last year, especially around that mini budget time. But are you still confident that they're going to hold up as, you know, a kind of safe haven? Yeah, I think a lot of the risks that we saw were due to interest rate movements. It wasn't really about credit risk or perceived credit risk, whereas in emerging markets, that is a concern. So if you live in Russia, for example, Brazil, India, then the default risk is higher than it would be for something like the UK. You know, even though we had some crazy stuff going on at the political level, 
which pushed up the yields on UK government bonds. There was never a question about default. That's true. But perhaps we have higher risk than some other developed markets of persistent inflation, which would not be good news for UK bonds. No, that's certainly true. And I think another concern would also be that the fiscal situation is potentially worse in the UK. So there could be a kind of spiral of debt as governments spend too much. So that could be a concern. I mean, my instinct as someone who lives in the UK would be that my bond allocation would be some form of currency hedged, diversified global government bonds rather than just taking a punt on UK gilts. Yeah, that's what I would have done. In fact, that's exactly what I did. I had a global sterling hedged bond fund when I used to have bonds in my core portfolio. Now, of course, I just have equity without a hedge. But there's lots of nuances in terms of construction. But I think the general idea holds that if you're going for an all-weather approach, you need to select something for each of these buckets. Now, an interesting one also is the commodity exposure. And I had a really interesting talk with the head of the largest US risk parity ETF, Alex Shahidi, and his colleague Damien Bisserier. And this was available for members as one of the explainers. But it was just an interview with the fund managers. It was just brilliant. And they were talking about their commodity exposure. Now, what they chose to do is kind of interesting. Instead of going for straight commodities, what they had was a gold allocation. So they've got the kind of gold component. And they also added a component for broad commodities, but it was via the equity market. So they'd go for companies that were positively correlated, say, with copper. So these could be global miners. It could be someone that refines that product or processes it in some way. But they found that that was a much better hedge than something like a straight commodities future market exposure. It's interesting because often people say that commodities and the commodity producers behave in slightly different ways. Obviously, you've got idiosyncratic risk around the stocks of the actual companies. So yeah, I'm not convinced, but then I obviously know a lot less than they do. (laughs) A lot, lot less. But their point was also that that way you also get the positive risk premium that you get with equity, but you also get the kind of commodity exposure. Now, the problem is that you lose some of the diversification because if stocks crash, then so will the commodity companies because they are stocks after all. So that's why they also have the kind of physical gold component to kind of reduce that correlation. So I thought it was quite a neat approach. And that's the RPAR fund, R-P-A-R, in the US, If in case you wanted to look it up just to see what's inside the fund. I guess the acid test would have been 2022 when stocks obviously had a terrible year, but commodities had a great year. How did they do in that environment? It didn't do very well at all. So it was down about 33% between the end of 2021 and October of 2022. I think whatever you do, at some point in some situation, it's going to have a bad year, right? You can't always avoid drawdowns, no matter how much we try. And it's interesting, with most versions of the all-weather portfolio, based on Ray Dalio's approach, it had its worst year on record, I think, last year. So if you plot the S&P 500 and you plot the all-weather portfolio, last year they basically track each other. The drawdown was around 25% at its worst for both. But anything which has a lot of bonds in it is going to have suffered hugely. It was the worst drawdown for treasuries, for example, ever, I think, or certainly one of the worst since the US Civil War. Yeah, and inflation-linked bonds didn't do their job. 
Nope, because real yields rose hugely. And so, you know, if you had lots of duration, so UK investors, for example, that had linkers would have been crushed because UK linkers, inflation-linked bonds, have really long duration, 20 years plus. So even an all-weather portfolio can't quite cope with a hurricane. No. So what we've talked about so far is basically asset allocation using this risk parity approach to balance your holdings of different assets. And you can do it all in a passive way. But there are alternative approaches which take a more active strategy, aren't they, to try and achieve this same effect. And in fact, I didn't explain it for members recently, which was about wealth preservation funds, because people were worried about another crash. People are always worried about another <laughs> crash, Robin. When is that not true? <laughs> so, so what I did is I actually created a kind of dream wealth preservation fund, and I just listed its attributes. For example, one would be that it wouldn't be a drag on return during good times. So you could always hold it. You wouldn't have to kind of predict when market crashes are going to happen, which kind of negates the value of this kind of fund in the first place. If you knew when it was going to happen, you just sell your equity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the best hedge. Sell the equity just before the crash. <laughs> <laughs> so what you want in one of these funds is something that would just sit there silently generating equity-like returns during the good times. But then during the bad times, it would have what's called convexity, which means that it would fall less than the broad equity market. So one of the funds that came out really well from that explainer was Ruffer, because it did generate fairly good returns over the long term during good times, but then during crash periods, such as 2008 and 2020, it did okay. It didn't lose money. And in some cases, it actually rose quite a lot in value. So what is Ruffer? Is this a UK fund? It's actually an international fund manager. So if you are based abroad, you can buy it, but it's based primarily in Europe and the UK. And they manage quite a lot of money, but the idea is that it's a wealth preservation fund and it's kind of like the All Seasons portfolio. But it's active. So their strapline is, we aim to deliver consistent positive returns, whatever happens in financial markets. That's the dream though, isn't it? Do you believe the dream? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is quite expensive. That's what I'd say. So the management fees up above 1%. But their record is pretty good. They have done pretty well historically. So. Firstly, what does their performance look like then? You say it's done pretty well historically. So roughly historically, they've kept in line with global benchmarks like the S&P 500, but they have done that with lower volatility, which is kind of like the holy grail. Yeah, it's impressive. Not a lot of drawdown and pretty good returns. So it kind of ticked the boxes when I was doing that kind of overview. And so it was really interesting to talk to the portfolio managers themselves to see how they'd achieved it. And there were some real surprises. Yeah, so what's their strategy then? Because, yeah, like you say, they kind of have done the holy grail, at least so far. Their approach is, at every point in time, they list the financial risk du jour, whatever it should be. So if it's increasing interest rates, they'll enter into an interest rate swap. If it's higher inflation, they'll buy inflation protection, maybe with an interest rate swap. Or they'll buy things like options on VIX. So this is a really esoteric thing because VIX itself is a fear index, which spikes when people are scared. But they buy call options on VIX, which are usually deeply out of the money because they'll buy this stuff when everything's fine. So you can just imagine them calling the trade desk at one of these investment banks and the guy's going to be rolling his eyes and saying, oh, no, it's rougher again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they buy almost the whole market of options on VIX at one point? So if you're sitting on the trading desk, if you get a call from Ruffer, 
you'll be thinking, okay, nobody wants to buy protection, so you know the price of the option will be low. From your point of view, though, is you're taking a big risk because when volatility does spike, you'll have a big negative position. You'll have the opposite payoff. And that means that you're going to have to hedge in order to reduce that risk. So you're going to have a lot of work to kind of lay off that risk if rougher is proved right, which it has been in the past. Yeah. I mean, they're doing a lot of things that we basically can't do as retail investors, right? So you could only really do this strategy if you're a professional manager. Like we can't go buying options on VIX, at least not easily or profitably. But these are called teenies and the trading desk hates them. What's teenies? Well, it's teenies because the price of the option is tiny when you buy it, but it can blow up into this massive volcano of risk later on down the road. Well, why sell it then? Well, they don't have an option. Oh dear, that wasn't very good, is it? (laughs) They do. They're selling them all the time. (laughs) Too many options. They don't have a choice. If you're a market maker, you can't say, no, you know, I can't sell you this option because... Well, you can price it so high that no one wants to buy it. Yeah, but, you know, if the volatility is low at that time, you can't really do that. But still, that's why they call 50 cent, because they bought these really cheap options on VIX, which are worth 50 cents, and then it really paid off. And what's the song by? Who was it? Roman, you don't know 50 cent. Let's not try and talk about 50 cent. (laughs) Here we go. Get Rich or Die Trying. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. That's his album. Who is it? 50 cent. Oh, that's the name of the artist. I'm just going to put all this in. He looks quite scary. Yeah. He's been shot nine times. And survived, which is a good metaphor for rougher, isn't it? I mean, in the interview, they seemed to embrace the 50 Cent name, didn't they? And I went into full granddad mode because I'd never heard of 50 Cent. <laughs> I can't believe that, though. <laughs> Do you never hear in the club down when you're on your nights out? I've got no idea. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to bring it back to investing, like if you're doing this strategy where you're buying lots of options, which is kind of like insurance, right? You're buying insurance all the time against what could go wrong. Presumably, you're paying a premium constantly, which is a drag on returns. So does the rest of your portfolio have to work really hard to keep up when the bad stuff doesn't happen? So this kind of trade, some people call it a pain trade. The problem is that it has a negative holding cost. You're having to pay in order to hold that position and that view. So negative carry is not something you want to have for a long period of time. So if you're scared of something and it doesn't materialize, it's going to be a drag on return. This is why I couldn't run this kind of fund because I'm always scared of something. There's always something out there I can find which is like, that's going to be the next financial crisis for sure. But the real shocker was that they bought a huge amount of Bitcoin, not as a percentage of the fund. It was around 2% of the fund, I think. But still, for a fund which is supposedly a safe fund. Wealth preservation in Bitcoin. Wealth preservation. (laughs) They bought Bitcoin. They did well out of it as well, to be fair. Their timing was like bang on. They did incredibly well. They bought it at, what was it, like 16K or something and sold it at 68 or something like that. And it was really interesting hearing Duncan McKinney's describe exactly why they did it and also their thinking behind it, but also their current thinking about it. Did they do it as a PR ploy? That would be the cynic <laughs> in me. Like, wow, what's this wealth preservation fund doing buying Bitcoin? Those mad people. (laughs) But if you think about why they buy things, it's because it's uncorrelated with what's going on in the rest of the market. Now, at the moment, that's not true because Bitcoin's trading very much like a leveraged version of NASDAQ. And that was part of the discussion which we had, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's a great interview. And I would say, you know, if you're a Pentacraft member, go and listen to it. And if you're not, why not? But I guess like in summary of this active wealth preservation fund, 
basically the reason they've done well is they've been right. They've kind of had to forecast macro conditions and what could go wrong, and they've called it right up to now. But then the cynic in me kind of says, well, there's lots of macro investment funds trying to do this. One of them's going to have to do it well for like a 10-year or a 20-year period. Is Ruff a, a genius? Like maybe. Or maybe they're just the one fund that's happened to do well and called it all right up to now. And it was interesting talking to them because you know what they say about as you get older, it's kind of like policemen seem older. I felt exactly the same way about fund managers because Jasmine Yeo and Duncan McKinnis, they just seem really young. <laughs> and I just think, you know, they're very good, but will the fund managers always be good? Or was it just a little bit of luck which resulted in these periods of outperformance? And that's why I think it's really important that whenever you do buy one of these active funds, it's a kind of collegiate decision by which they come to the actual portfolio allocation. And that does seem to be the case for Ruffer. I was impressed by them in your interview, right? Like, I don't want to be too cynical because we need people like this trying to do it and they're yeah. doing it well. So good luck to them. But the question is always, you know, who's going to be running the fund next year and the year after that? Will it be the same people? And will they do such a good job? Or even if it's the same people, like they're going to be wrong eventually at some point. Like they have been wrong about some bets, right? They did bet on inflation-linked government bonds, which had a bad year. But then they were kind of hedged against that risk with interest rate swaps, was it? Interest rate swaps, yeah, because interest rates went up. So the inflation swaps counteracted the fall in linkers. But still, like, just don't buy the linkers, right? And then you'd have to pay a premium <laughs> on the inflation <laughs> options. But however you go about this kind of wealth preservation strategy, whether that's through a passive or weather portfolio or betting on someone like Ruffer or another active fund, there presumably are downsides to doing it right. Like we've already mentioned, you're likely to underperform just going with stocks and holding through the volatility long term. But are there other risks there? Well, certainly you'll pay a higher fee. And generally, these funds will be more complex than just buying equity. And there will be derivatives involved. And if there are derivatives involved, there's leverage. And if there's leverage, there's crises and scandals. Counterparty risk. Counterparty risk is another one. Now, one of the things that these companies will very carefully try to manage is their counterparty risk. But we've already seen that when a big name goes down, like Lehman, all these interlinkages start to surface and other supposedly unrelated companies start to suffer as well. And I think it's almost impossible to kind of untangle that weave of relationships. So yeah, when there's complexity, then there's risk. And I think that, you know, that's something that's going to go with one of these funds. I think there are also psychological risks. Like we've said, the psychological benefit from these funds is that, okay, drawdowns are probably going to be lower, and therefore you're less likely to do the wrong behavior of selling in a crash. But then maybe the flip side of that is you get a kind of overconfidence and you think I'm always going to be safe and you're not prepared for any kind of crash when that isn't the case, right? There will be drawdowns and you could get a really big one at some point if the future doesn't look like the past because these are all correlated based on historical returns. And well, all of these kind of crises that we've been describing have been ones which aren't particularly bad. I guess you could say the pandemic is a kind of physical crisis, but we haven't really had a huge tsunami that wipes out the east coast of America or something, you know, unbelievably bad, which you just can't hedge against. All of the crises which you've kind of been discussing have been ones which were almost human made due to financial reasons. So I think those kind of things, this isn't going to hedge against. 
I think another problem is that you're going to have shiny ball syndrome. You're going to have FOMO. There will always be funds which perform much better than your fund. And that's a problem. And you're just going to have to deal with that as someone who owns this kind of fund. And these kind of funds can only be held as long-term investments, really. That's the whole point, is that they work on a risk parity basis over the business cycle, right? So you can't particularly dance in and out of them. So you've got to really believe it. And I think for many people, that's difficult. You know, particularly when you've had a year in which it hasn't done well, which we've had recently. So I think that's going to be the difficulty, sticking with it. And for me personally, it would just sicken me, right, to hold 50% of my portfolio in bonds. I don't think I could do that. You see, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'd probably go for physical bonds. I wouldn't go for a bond fund because then I'd know what I'd get. And I could just hold them to maturity. And unlike Silicon Valley Bank, I don't have to sell them. But maybe I'm just looking at it in the wrong way because I'm sort of falling into that trap of looking at each component of the portfolio and saying, oh man, I hate bonds long term, they're going to underperform, when really I should be looking at, you know, the whole pie. Now we mentioned that interview with Alex Shahidi, who manages the Risk Parity Fund, and the interview with Ruffurve, which members really loved. Now if you want to access those and all the other explainers, go to pensioncraft.com to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is a tail risk fund? How does it differ from everything we've just talked about? And how does a tail risk fund work? Now, the problem with these tail risk funds is that, as we discussed, you're going to have to pay a premium in order to maintain a hedge. So let's say you buy out-of-the-money options on the S&P 500 put options. These increase in value when the S&P falls. So if there is a crash... There's no question these things will outperform. But most of the time, remember, the S&P doesn't crash, it rises. So you'll be paying this premium away and this will be a drag on your returns. So that's the problem with tail risk funds, which just buy some kind of option strategy in order to minimise your losses. So I guess just stepping back, maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's not. What is a tail risk? What do you mean? Are we just talking about a crash in equity? So these are the once in a decade nasty falls in equity, which are really big. You know, we could be talking 40, 50 percent. So these hugely impact people's psychology because these put people off investing for a generation. So if you like feeling smug, there's a huge smug payoff for one of these strategies because everybody else will be losing money. But you'll have this beautiful fund which pays off hugely if markets do fall and offset some of your losses. So there's a really interesting fund with the ticker SMUG, which is, no, it's not, it's TA. <laughs> it should be SMUG. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Tail, isn't it? T-A-I-L. T-A-I-L, yeah. And is that doing this out of the money options strategy you talked about? Yeah, so this is the Cambria Tail Risk ETF, and it's available to US investors, not UK investors, of course. And nothing we've talked about on this podcast is a recommendation, especially not this. <laughs> But generally, this thing falls in value. So if I plot the return on it since 2017, it's down by about 42%. So with this one, in order to make the best use of it, when you think markets are looking a little bit choppy and there could be a crash in the offing, that would make sense to buy some of this. I mean, you definitely can't hold it long term, can you? Because you're just paying away money all the time. But let's say you could see the pandemic coming. Okay. Right. If you worked in that lab where it escaped from, you thought, oh no, the glass is broken. (laughs) Run out. 
buy some of this. <laughs> what was the animal that actually had the virus? It was, it was a pangolin. It wasn't a pangolin. No, there was a different one. There was a different one this time. It was some kind of... Uh, Mongoose. It was a raccoon dog. Oh, I love those little things. I wanted one as a pet, but it's not allowed. They are very fluffy. It looks like a cross between a panda and a dog. Yeah, I love like weird sort of bootleg versions of animals, like a red panda or a raccoon dog, where they're not related to a panda or a raccoon at all. <laughs> You're going to have a zoo, aren't you, when you become a reclusive millionaire? Yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? If you could predict the pandemic coming. <laughs> so if you could have predicted it and you'd have bought this tail fund, say February in 2020, it went up by something like 28%. So that would have paid off hugely. Usually you don't hold a large percentage in one of these tail funds, but it would have certainly offset the losses. But that's the fundamental problem, right? You can't predict these things. So you'd have to hold it for a long period of time and it would be a drag on returns. All right. The thing I've never understood really about these tail risk funds is that let's say I hold it as a small proportion of my portfolio, just generally in case of a crash. So let's say I have, I don't know, 95% in the stock market and 5% in this tail risk fund. So then when the market's down 50%, I'm only down 10%, whatever it might be. What's the difference between doing that approach, where I'm constantly paying money to hold this insurance, versus just holding less stocks and saying I'm going to hold 50% stocks and 50% cash, which falls less than holding 100% stocks? Do you see what I mean? Like, Why would I hold the tail risk rather than just taking less risk? I think you can just take less risk, and I think that's a lot simpler. I think for these things, really, you do have to have that timing approach where you can see a, a choppy period coming up, and then you'd kind of increase the amount of tail risk hedge. But I think the important point here is that your investment horizon matters here as well. If you do need that money over the next five years, say, then you probably want to hedge in place if you've got a lot of risk. But I think the simpler approach is simply to have less risk in the first place, as you say with the understanding that that's going to reduce your return. And I guess the thing I would be worried about maybe a little bit, if I'm trying to hedge against a truly horrific fall, like a Great Depression 90% drop in stocks, is that all of these out-of-the-money put option strategies have some counterparty, right, on the other side, who you're relying on to pay you out when the market crashes. And what if the market is crashing because all the banks are going bankrupt, right? Then your tail risk is not hedging anything. Yeah, the counterparty risk is a real concern. And I think if there was a huge problem with the financial markets and with the investment banks who usually take the other side of the trade, then yeah, that would be a concern. And that's most likely to happen in the big tail risk event, right? Yeah. So, you know, the most extreme cases, there's wrong way risk here. You're buying insurance from the people who are actually in the burning house. You know, not such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.